Hey again, welcome to the Study Faithfully podcast. And of course, my name is Sandy and I'll be your host. This week, we officially begin our study in the Gospel of Matthew, and I am super excited. To start things off, we will be looking at the genealogy Matthew presents in the first chapter of his book. Genealogies were quite significant within the Jewish culture, so throughout the Bible, you'll see quite a few of them, especially in the Old Testament. But why did Matthew choose to start his gospel off with a genealogy? And what was the significance of the way that he presented it? This is what we're going to go over in this episode. So lean in and I pray that God speaks to us through this study. Our scripture focus for this study is going to be Matthew chapter 1 verses 1 through 17. Before we dive into this study, I'm going to read the entire passage. But bear with me because there are quite a few names listed. Matthew 1 verses 1 through 17 says... The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. And Judah the father of Perez, and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram. And Ram the father of Abinadab, and Abinadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab. And Boaz, the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David, the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, and Solomon, the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam, the father of Abijah, and Abijah, the father of Asaph, and Asaph, the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat, the father of Joram, and Joram, the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah, the father of Jotham, and Jotham, the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah. And Hezekiah the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh the father of Amos, and Amos the father of Josiah, and Josiah the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel was the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel was the father of Abiud, and Abiud the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Azor, and Azor the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Akim, and Akim the father of Eliud, and Eliud the father of Eliezer, and Eliezer the father of Mathan, and Mathan the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who was called Christ. So all generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. So as I mentioned before, there are quite a few names listed here, and we won't necessarily focus on all of them, but there are some key objectives that I do want to focus on for our study today. First, I want to explore what a genealogy is, especially within the Jewish culture. Second, I want to explore what it means for Jesus to be the son of David and the son of Abraham. Third, I want to explore why Matthew places names of women in his genealogy. And lastly, I want to explore why Matthew chooses to place his genealogy in sets of 14 generations. So what are genealogies? The basic definition of a genealogy is a record or account of the ancestry or descent of a person, family, group, or the study of family ancestries and history. Typically, when we come across the various genealogies in the Bible, we just want to skip over it completely. A lot of people find them to be irrelevant or boring, but the reality is the genealogies mentioned in the Bible have so much more meaning than what we think. Now, in the Old Testament, there are quite a few genealogies. You can find them in books like Genesis, Numbers, First and Second Chronicles, and Ezra. Within the Jewish culture, the ancient Israelites placed great importance on who their family ancestors were for several reasons. First, genealogies emphasize the importance of the family unit in the Jewish culture. 
Family legacy was important for the Jews, so marriage and bearing children was critical to continue their family lines. The Israelites also depended on genealogies to confirm a person's heritage, inheritance, legitimacy, and rights. Genealogies will help determine who could serve in certain roles. So as you may know, only the Levites could serve within the tabernacle or temple in the Old Testament. Also, only the descendants of Abraham could serve as high priest. For example, after the people of Israel had returned from the Babylonian exile, they had to figure out who could serve as priests in the temple, but some were disqualified. For example, Ezra 2 verses 61 to 62 says, Three families of priests, Hobiah, Hakaz, and Barzillai, also returned. They searched for their names in the genealogical records, but they were not found, so they were disqualified from serving as priests. Next, many of the Mosaic laws could only be applied to the Jewish people. Each of the 12 Jewish tribes had received a land of inheritance in Israel, and in order to inherit that piece of land, they needed proof to show that they were actually part of that tribe. Lastly, the genealogies in the New Testament were used to prove that the promises and prophecies about Christ were true. God promised that Israel's future kings would be descendants of King David and that Jesus would be a Jew from the tribe of Judah. And these came to pass. So why does Matthew trace Jesus to David and Abraham? In verse 1, Matthew refers to Jesus as the son of David and the son of Abraham. Well, first, to be the son of David in a Jewish culture was considered a messianic title. Jesus was in fact the Messiah, and Messiah means the anointed one. But Jesus is also considered the son of David because God promised David that following his death, he would raise up another king in his place and that his kingly throne would be established forever. 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 12-16 through 16 says, When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men, but my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul whom I put away before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. This is considered the covenant that God made with David. When David became king, he wanted to build a house for the Lord, but God didn't let him. He instead promised him an eternal kingly throne. After David died, his son Solomon became king. But the covenant that God made with David would be fulfilled through Jesus, who is the eternal king. Further, Jesus is considered the son of Abraham. Now, if you're not familiar with the story of Abraham, you can go and read more about his story in Genesis, starting from chapter 12. But in chapter 17 specifically, God makes a covenant with him. So Genesis 17 verses 1 through 5 says, When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to him and said, I am El Shaddai, God Almighty. Serve me faithfully and live a blameless life. I will make a covenant with you, by which I will guarantee to give you countless descendants. At this, Abram fell face down on the ground. Then God said to him, This is my covenant with you. I will make you the father of a multitude of nations. What's more, I am changing your name. It will no longer be Abram. Instead, you will be called Abraham, for you will be a father of many nations. So through Isaac, Abram's son, came Jacob, whose name was changed to Israel. And he had 12 sons who each formed the 12 tribes of Israel. And that's how the nation of Israel was birthed. Through his family line, specifically the tribe of Judah, came Jesus Christ, the promised Messiah. Next, you'll notice names of five women in Matthew's genealogy. 
So within the Jewish culture, it was patriarchal in nature, meaning fathers or men in particular were prominent in their society. So genealogies usually listed names of men who led their families and not necessarily women. Tamar is listed in verse 3. Rahab and Ruth are listed in verse 5. Bathsheba, or the wife of Uriah, is listed in verse 6. And then Mary is listed in verse 16. I'll explain who they are just in case you're not familiar with them. Tamar's story can be found in Genesis 38. She was a widow of Judah's son, Ur, and after Ur died, she was given to Judah's second son, Onan. But then he also died. She was left childless, but Judah then promised that she would marry his youngest son, Shelah, when he got older. But Judah didn't keep his promise. So Tamar eventually tricked Judah and disguised herself as a prostitute to have kids by him. They ended up having two twin boys, Perez and Zerah. Rahab was a prostitute from Jericho who in Joshua 2 verses 1 to 24 hides and assists the Israelite spies sent by Joshua to assess the promised land. Ruth was a Moabite woman who in Ruth 1 16 decides to go with her mother-in-law Naomi back to Israel after both of their husbands died. In order to secure their future and continue their family line, Ruth takes the advice of her mother-in-law to lie at the feet of a kinsman redeemer, a close relative named Boaz whom eventually marries her, enabling them to continue her family line. Next, 2 Samuel 11.4 tells us that King David had an affair with Bathsheba while her husband Uriah was at war, and then David had him murdered in battle in 2 Samuel 11. As a result, their first son died as God's punishment for the affair, but then she became pregnant with Solomon. He became king after David died. And lastly, we have Mary, who is the mother of Jesus, she was a virgin and God chose her to conceive Jesus through the Holy Spirit, but we'll learn more about her next week. Theologians believe that Matthew included the names of these women, especially the first four, who weren't considered Jewish, because he wanted to prove the point that Jesus has a genealogical relationship not only with Israel, but to all nations. Also, Jesus uses and cares about the least likely people. And lastly, why does Matthew structure his genealogy in groups of 14 generations? Theologians believe that he did this because the number seven to the Jewish community was significant. The number seven means perfection and completion. It also signifies rest. So there are six sets of seven generations, but Jesus would have ushered in the seventh generation. In Genesis chapter two, we see that God rests on the Sabbath day, which was the seventh day. Also, according to Deuteronomy 15, the Israelites had to observe the sabbatical year. And every seven years, they had to cancel debts and free anyone who was sold to slavery. So because Jesus' coming would have been a part of the seventh set of seven generations, it means that he is the completion of God's promised rest to Israel that will come through the Messiah. Now that Jesus is here, Israel can now enter into a time of complete rest. So what's the overall message that we can take away from this? After the Babylonian exile, there were no more kings from the line of Judah. And there was a period of 400 years when no prophets had been speaking throughout the land of Israel. But this genealogy would have served as a reminder to the Jews that the Messiah had come. They could now go into a time of rest. God's story wasn't over. It was just beginning. As we can see, starting the New Testament off with Matthew's genealogy is critical. Matthew's entire gospel, as we talked about last week, was to prove that Jesus Christ is the Messiah. And Matthew's genealogy makes it clear that he is. They had been waiting for the promised Messiah to come, but God kept his promise to them to bring a Savior into the world and bring them to an eternal place of rest. So how does this apply to us? 
Well, I want to remind you that God is still faithful to his promises, even if we have to wait a while. The story isn't over. Don't get caught up in what's not happening or maybe even God's silence and get discouraged. You can rest in the fact that God's promises will always come to pass. And you can also rest in the fact that Jesus Christ is the ultimate place of rest. Put your trust in him, follow and obey him, and know that the story isn't over. It's just the beginning. May we rest in God's power and in his son, Jesus Christ, knowing that God is faithful to the end. His promises are yes and amen. And this marks the end of this episode. I pray that it blessed you. And um, of course, if you have any other questions, you can always contact us on all social media platforms at Study Faithfully. You can also email us at hello at studyfaithfully.com. I hope that you'll come back next week for part two of this series through the book of Matthew. Stay blessed and have a great week.